0: And I invite you to turn in a copy of the Bible to Galatians chapter 3 this morning. The third chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians. If you are using a house Bible, it is page 973. I should have that memorized by now. keep saying the same page number for a while. Galatians chapter 3. I think most people have a sense that to be right with God, you have to be a good person. That for some people, there's even a recognition that you have to be in keeping with the law of God. If You're ever going to be in the right before God. And that's true as far as it goes. It really is. Uh, Here's the principle that is embedded in the law. Leviticus chapter 18 verse 5 puts it this way. You shall therefore, God says, keep my statutes and my rules. If a person what? Are you all with me? If a person does them, he will live by them. This is the principle that's stated in Deuteronomy at the end of the giving of the law the second time, chapter 27, verse 26, the Lord says, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And then the very next verse says, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you on High above all the nations of the earth, and all the blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And Paul himself echoes this principle in Romans chapter 2, verse 6, where he says that God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and persistence in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give them eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be fury and wrath, wrath and fury. This is the principle of the law, that the one who obeys will live. That the way to be right in the sight of God is to do everything that God has commanded. God has certainly a right to ask that of those who are His creatures, those who are His mere creation. And I think one of the greatest things that a man or woman could ever do is to really think seriously and honestly about the law of God and about how he or she stacks up to the law. And few people do that, especially in our culture. But if someone were to take the time to really think seriously and soberly and and honestly about his uh, keeping or lack thereof with regard to the law, apart from the grace of God, it usually produces one of two responses in people. Either on the one hand, a person and probably this is fewer people, but some may despair of ever being able to measure up and just go all out in their sinfulness. If I can't ever meet God's expectations anyway, I'll just be a sinner. Probably most people, though, attempt in some way or another to minimize their wrongdoing, to excuse their sin in such a way that redefines God's law or their relationship to God's law in order to allow them to justify themselves in their own minds. That's what most people do, right? You ask most people about their obedience in terms of God's law and they'll say something like, I'm a pretty good person. I do the best I can. I don't do the really bad things. I try not to be, you know, really I try to be, you know, as as good as the average person or a little bit better. I hope I'll I hope I'll be right with God. Well, the false teachers, there were false teachers who came to this place in the Roman province of Galatia and were teaching a false doctrine to the churches that Paul had founded, and they were really bringing in what they called the gospel. Paul called it another gospel that's not really another because there is only one gospel. This is a perversion, a distortion of the gospel. And these teachers were, were telling the churches in Galatia that they could be right with God by being law keepers. And they especially focused in on circumcision according to the law, a law of the law of Moses, as the first and foremost act of obedience to God. This act marked them out, they believed, as sons of Abraham, those to whom God had promised his blessing they came along to these believers in Galatian churches and said, you know, Paul has taught you faith in Christ and faith is good, don't get us wrong, but faith is not enough. You need to be circumcised and obey the Mosaic law if you are ever going to be justified before God. But Paul's whole argument of the book of Galatians has been that a person cannot be justified by the works of the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ, right? That is his message. That's his gospel in a nutshell, especially as he's defending it from these false teachers. And in chapter 3, verses 10 to 29, he really is focusing in on the relationship between his gospel, his message, and the law. His message, the gospel, rests on the promise of God. How does that relate to the law of God? What is the relation between the law and the promise? This is his focus, and uh, we looked at this a little bit last week. We'll probably have to come back to this section one more time next week. But let's read it in its context, beginning up in verse 10, actually, and all the way down to 29, Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a what? Under a curse, because it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. There's a curse for disobedience, we read. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Holy, the promised Spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, verse 15, even a man, with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean, he says, verse 17. The law, which came 430 years afterward, after the promise, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Or if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promises had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law contrary to the promises of God then? Certainly not. For if the law had been given, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jude nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, neither there, uh, there is no male and female. For all are, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Now, verses 15, where he starts talking about an earthly illustration all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 29, this has been our real focus. Last week, this week, and as I say, probably again next week too. Uh, 15 to 29, and in this passage, Paul is making three points about the relationship between the gospel based on the promise and the law, the law of God. The first is the place of the law. This is where we spent most of our time last week. This is verses 15 to 18. What is the place of the law in God's overall plan for salvation? what is the place of the law and what we found last week looking at this text more uh in detail was that the law has a place uh, a subordinate place to the promise that is the promise of god's blessing upon abraham and his offspring the law paul argues came after all 430 years later the promise had priority. The law came later, and this late coming law cannot nullify He says the promise that God had already made and He used the illustration of a human contract doesn't nullify a previous contract Now I want to ask you this and just sort of focus down on on this for a moment and I'm going to try to make it as clear as I can. I searched for an illustration and came up wanting, but this was really a an a a, 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 a a growing time for me in my understanding of this text. I want to ask you this. How might the law nullify the promise? He says, does the law annul the promise? How might that happen? Well, consider the promise. God made a promise to Abraham, right? I will bless you and your offspring. That's it. In in terms of the passage that Paul's looking at. It was just an indiscriminate promise. There is no strings attached. There are no obligations put to this. There's only one thing that you're required to do with a promise. What do you do with a promise? You just believe it, right? Or don't believe it. And Abraham believed God's promise, and on the basis of his faith, he was declared by God to be Righteous because of God's plan for that promised offspring. So that was the promise. Now, 430 years later, to Abraham's physical offspring, to his descendants, God said this, I will bless you if you obey me. If you receive circumcision and if you keep my commandments, you will be blessed. Now, the question is, is God changing the terms upon which people relate to him midstream? Is he changing the terms upon which someone is pronounced righteous in his sight? And Paul's answer is what? No, he's not changing the terms. The law somehow serves a subordinate and complementary function to the promise. And I think a big part, hear me now, a big part of what the law was doing, a big part of the place of the law in the terms of salvation history is is that the law was there to narrow or to focus the concept of Abraham's offspring. I'll say that again. The law served in its place to narrow or to focus the concept of Abraham's offspring. How did it do that? Well, on the one hand, God said to Abraham, I will bless you and your offspring. It's an unconditional promise, right? But on the other hand, he says to Israel, I will bless you if you obey me. And Abraham's descendants, of course, failed to obey. So, if the law doesn't Contradict the promise, if it doesn't annul the promise, then what does it do? And what it does is that it narrows or it focuses the promise onto the one to whom it was always meant to refer. And you see that in, in this is exactly where Paul's going in the very next verse. I, 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 I struggled a little bit last week to f- understand how verse 16. Sort of fits into the flow of his argument. Why is he now going back to talking about what he did earlier um, about Abraham's offspring? But but this is this is part of the place of the law. It does narrow and it does focus us on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse sixteen. He says, "Now the promises they were made to Abraham and to his offspring, and it does not say offspring's plural. He says, but." referring to one, that word was referring to one person, one offspring who is Christ. Now, of course, there isn't, there isn't ambiguity in the word. And, and this is part of, you know, some people come to this text and they say, well, you know, see there, New Testament writers just take Old Testament passages and sort of pluck them out and make them say whatever they want to say. That is exactly not what's going on here. This is an incredibly Intricate theological argument, and I only wish I could make it more clear. But here's what's happening: there is intentional ambiguity in the word, right? Offspring could refer to many, collectively it could refer to a single descendant. Which is it? All right now, follow the logic that is sitting behind, just under the surface of what Paul is saying. Here it is: if the promise is unconditional. That is, it is to all of those, all of those to whom the promise is made, they're gonna receive the blessing, right? The blessing is to your offspring. Your offspring will receive it. All your offspring will receive the promise. So who are the offspring? If, if, if the promise is unconditional, and yet the law places conditions on receiving the blessings, and if the law and the promise are not contradictory, then the promise must have had reference to an offspring who both keeps the conditions and surely receives the promise. They're both true. They're not in contradiction to each other. There is, there is an offspring out there who both keeps the conditions and receives the promise. And who is that but Christ alone? Christ alone who kept the law who is absolutely, clearly, theologically, the singular offspring to which that promise always pointed, to which it was always intending. All of which means that nobody is ever saved by God's lowering of His standards. That the covenant of works that the law principle, the principle, if you obey, you will live, embedded in the law, that that was never abolished, but rather that it was fulfilled by the singular offspring to whom the promise was made, that is, to Jesus Christ himself. Abraham's offspring will, I mean, you know who the offspring is, right? Abraham's offspring will inherit the blessing and the blessing will only come through perfect obedience. The law, in other words, serves the promise by focusing our attention on the one offspring to whom the promise was actually made, or to say it another way, maybe most helpfully, the law narrows the field of all possible reference by stipulating a perfect obedience. So that it becomes clear to us who that offspring is, to whom the promises are made. In other words, it's it's like I mentioned last week, like an hourglass. If you, I think it was last week, or like a funnel. You're just looking at the top half of an hourglass. There's this promise about the offspring. And, and when it comes down to it, it, it sort of narrows down, the law helps to narrow it down all the way until we realize it was really all about one person all along. And then from that person, it is extended now to all who are united to him, truly united to him by the grace of God in a faith union, whether they're circumcised or not. This, In this way, Christ Jesus is the absolute center of everything that God does in salvation. He is the center. It was the way God designed it. It was the way He meant it to be. He meant to glorify His Son, and the way He was going to do it is to save people like this, in this fashion. That's the place of the law, and I just had to come back to that again this morning. And then, secondly, and this is really all we'll have time for today, is just to look at then at verses nineteen to twenty-two, where Paul talks about the purpose of the law. We really began this a little bit last week, and I just want to just pick up on that and continue on. What is the purpose of the law? If the law doesn't save, if nobody is saved, if nobody is justified before God because he's good enough in terms of what the law demanded, if nobody is saved according to the law, then what is the purpose of the law for us, for Israel, for humanity? In verse 19, he asks that very question, right? Why then the law? And his answer is, it was added because of transgressions. And we talked about all the options of what that might mean last week, and just really came down to this. It has to do with the word transgression. What is a transgression? Transgression is a violation of law. It's Transgression means to cross a line. You know, here's a line in the sand. What does the law do? The law manifests sin. It shows sinfulness by making a clear line in the sand. There was sin before the law, but sin is not counted where there is no law. But the law made a clear line in the sand and proved humanity to be transgressors. The law multiplied sin by showing the sinfulness of man more clearly. It made sin into a clear transgression, which can be then charged against a person. It stirred up our inner rebellion by exposing us as sinners. And it's really grace that brings a man or a woman to really be confronted in his conscience by the law. This is really a grace of God. It's a um, it's a rough grace, but it is a good grace when a man is beaten up by the law, its demands and its penalties and threats Oh, I wish for more careful evangelical preaching of the law in our world today. You know, the gospel is usually presented this way. God wants to add something to your life to make your life better. You know, God wants you to be a happier person, so get Jesus. And, you know, there's there's sort of a little thin veneer of truth there, but there's something fundamentally missing, and that is that man's sense of his need for salvation, for a deliverer. And that is the the rough but gracious function of the law. What is it to be confronted with the law? What is it to really be honest with yourself in front of the demands of God's perfect moral goodness. You know Jesus taught about the law. He gave a whole exposition of many much of the law in Matthew chapter 5. And there Jesus argued that a person who hides behind double speak is nothing better than a liar, an outright liar. He argued that a person who lets anger fester in his heart is essentially a murderer. He argued that the person who lets lust rule in his mind is already an adulterer in the sight of God. Right, And this is, this is his interpretation of the law. In fact, he, he, he put the standard this way in that very passage. You must be perfect, just like God in heaven is perfect. You must be perfect. James, on his part, reminds us that we can't congratulate ourselves on you know, keeping this part of the law, look how well I'm doing, while we're breaking another part of the law. We have sustained from these sins, so we're good people, even while we are, in fact, committing other sins. We cannot comfort ourselves to say, well, at least I didn't do anything really bad, because, James says, every sin is an act of rebellion against one and the same God. The same God who gave this commandment over here that you're, Breaking also gave this commandment, this one that you're proud of keeping also gave this commandment that you're breaking. You're still rebelling against God. You're just choosing where you're going to rebel, but you're rebelling against God all the same. In other words, you know, there is no, there's no sort of, uh, you know, the way men look at sinners. Well, he's a bad sinner. He's not such a bad sinner. In the, in the grand scheme of really what God demands, every sinner is a sinner. Every sinner is a rebel. Every sinner deserves Every sin deserves the just and righteous wrath of God, right? Isn't that the answer to the catechism? Yeah. Pastor Mark Dever gives an illustration from marriage. He says, Let's suppose my wife asked me to go to the store and buy some things, but I deliberately buy a number of things, number of other things instead. Okay? Can you imagine this? He said, it is not a mistake on my part. Rather, I deliberately fail to get as much of something as I should and I get another brand of something other than what she requested and I omit some of the things on her list altogether. What would be the real problem? Would it be just a matter of individual items that I did or did not buy? I suggest, he writes, that my actions would reflect a larger Deeper issues in my relationship with my wife. And that's exactly the way James is arguing with regard to the law. You can't pick and choose and say, well, look, I'm obeying all of these, these things. I'm not doing anything really bad. I just, but I do this and this and this. You're still rebelling against the same God. There's still a heart issue going on between you and the God who gave that law. So James is able to say, if you keep the whole law but but fail in one point, you've become guilty of, of all of it. And this is, uh, this is really, honestly, a hard thing for a lot of people to swallow. For them to say, yeah, I, I received this. Um, we're so accustomed to wanting to justify ourselves. And the best way to justify yourself, everybody knows deep down in their heart of hearts, is to compare yourself with somebody who's just a little bit worse. And you can all find those kind of people. I mean, even Hitler probably had somebody that he was looking at going, at least I'm not that guy, right? Yeah. But the law is given by the one lawgiver. And no matter how we break it, what we're manifesting is that we are rebels at heart. Paul is taught in this very passage, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, That up in verse 10, that obedience to God must be personal, perfect, and perpetual. I want to ask you, who truly lives up to the demands of God's law? Who really lives that way? The way that God has meant you to live. Have you done that? And of course there are many people that try to undermine the good effect of God's law. They're trying to undermine the law for their own justification, but they're really undermining the good effect that the law was intended to bring. And they do that in several ways. One by reinterpreting the law of God according to the proper uh, or the or the predominant morality of the moment. That God can't really mean what that text says, they say. The church has interpreted this wrongly. We have a better understanding now. We've evolved as a culture. Now we understand better. They interpret the law of God according to the morality of the moment. And what they're doing is really making man the judge of God while still claiming somehow to be Christians. Listen, I'd rather they be honest with themselves and say, we're not Christians altogether. We just, we just don't believe God has the right to make any standards, we're just going to live apart from God's law, than to still claim to be Christians and redefining the law of God. And this is happening all over the place, especially in the realm of sexual morality. Other people excuse their sin by make appealing to their extenuating circumstances. Well... You don't understand the abuse, the mistreatment, the disadvantages that I've had. And listen, every sin in the world can be rationalized away by a person who's really motivated. Well, you don't understand my circumstances. You don't understand what I've been through. You don't understand what I've been facing. Anybody else would have made the same choice given my circumstance. I want to remind you that that's not true. It may be true for a lot of people, but I want to remind you that there was one person who stood in the face of the worst mistreatment that humanity could ever have thrown against him. And he did the right thing. Right? When a person does this, when a person reinterprets God's law or rationalizes his lawlessness, he is literally cutting himself off from one of the greatest graces of God, and that is the grace of conviction, the grace of judgment, the grace of condemnation. say, that doesn't sound like a grace. It's a grace if it's by the mercy of God on the way to salvation, and condemnation is the thing that Causes a person to cry out, Oh God, I need a deliverer. Oh wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's that person who's under the weight of conviction of his law breaking who realizes that he needs a deliverer. He needs a savior. And that savior is the only hope. And I want to tell you, Christ Jesus is the only hope for any and every law breaker in this room. And when you come to terms, with your own standing before God on a law basis. I pray and I trust that that will be the real grace of God that will drive you to hold on to Jesus Christ who is the promised offspring. I want to draw your attention to a couple of words here in the text. Verse 22 and 23, the word... Uh, In 22, the law imprisons, do you see that? It imprisons men under sin by proving them to be sinners and deserving of the law's judgments. And then in verse 23, men are held captive under the law. And you know, for some people, being in captivity, being in prison, turned out to be the best time in their lives. Because it was there, I mean, not the not that prison itself was a wonderful thing, but it was in prison that they were finally, you know, they finally came to their senses. And their lives made a big turn around. Anybody know somebody like that? It was like prison ended up being the best thing for them. And there might have been a loved one that did everything they could to keep them out of prison. They wanted to do everything they could to mitigate the, the damages of their own bad choices, but when they finally caught up with them, they ended up at the very bottom, that! Is where God finally met them because they were finally broken for the first time in their lives. I can't tell you how many people uh that, that I've read their their testimonies that they were converted in prison. And this is this is sort of the function of the law. It has an imprisoning function. And when that person is at his lowest point under the weight of the law, when he's the prodigal son sitting in the pigsty, he finally comes to himself and escapes from the snare of the devil, God having granted him repentance to come to a knowledge of the truth. And he returns and he says, Lord, save me. I need a deliverer. I need to be saved. The law served, verse 19, the law served this imprisoning function until... The offspring should come until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, that is Christ. So the law was there to drive men to look for someone to deliver them from the law's condemnation. Is your exposure to the law, your understanding of the law, your own law-breaking, has it ever done that for you? just made you say, oh God, I I need you to deliver me. The purpose of the law is not then as an end in itself, but rather it serves the promise by causing men to long for the offspring to whom the promise was made. Another evidence of the secondary purpose of the law Paul brings up here is the circumstances of its establishment. Notice verse 19. He talks about when the law was established. And he says that the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And then he says, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Here's, I think, probably what he's getting at. The law, of course, we know was given on Mount Sinai. The law was given to who? Who's the guy that went up on the mountain? Moses, given to Moses. The intermediary to give then to Israel. And if you remember the account, um, God had brought Israel to the mountain where the law was coming and what happens when sinners come in contact with the law? Well, the mountain showed them what happens. It quaked. And there was fire, and there was thunder, and there was a dark tempest. And it was just, I mean, it was, I I probably should have thought of of this a little bit better, but you've probably been in, maybe you've been in a situation where you were out in a storm or in a natural disaster, that's probably a little more rare. But maybe you were in a really bad storm, and it literally, it literally, Frightened you? Scared you? Maybe, maybe they're, you know, we live pretty sheltered lives now, not out in the elements as much. Maybe it's harder for us to relate to, but, I mean, this was a, a, this was the, the law of God coming in contact with sinful men, and, and it was all of the threats visualized in the elements. And what did the people say? The people said, don't let God talk to us anymore. Tell him to stop talking to us. Talk to you instead, and you come tell us what God wants for us. So the law came to them through this intermediary, and further, God revealed it to Moses through angels. That's not quite as evident when you read uh, the Exodus account, but it is evident when Moses recounts it in Deuteronomy 32.2. The writer of Hebrews talks about this in Hebrews 2.2. The law came to Moses through... Angels i don 't know exactly how that happened or what that was like. I imagine the angels were a big part of all of that physical um, uh, all of those physical things that were happening on the mountain, the fire and the earthquakes and all of that even the even the winds God makes his spirits right um, and so uh, this is the way the law came and 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 the false teachers were probably fascinated with this. you know the Jews. Especially of this period sort of had this fascination with angels and 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 the law the um, the false teachers here who were elevating the law probably said hey the the law was given by angels, this is elevating the glory of the law in their view, but for Paul, it seems to be an indication of the law 's subordinate place. Do you remember God spoke to Abraham, and this is his comparison right God spoke to Abraham directly. But the law came sort of third hand, if you will. God gave it to through angels to Moses to the people. So you have, and and by the way, that's a picture of the distance that human, humans have from God in terms of the law. The law always keeps people at a distance, and so, um, so, so this is part of what's going on here. And and probably even greater significance is the fact that. As as he said, mediation—a mediator implies more than one, which sort of implies, I think, um, the idea that there's more of a contract or an agreement uh, that's being um, uh, established here at Mount Sinai. Because mediation involves bringing together two parties, right? Two or more parties. And the agreement is dependent on both parties fulfilling their obligations and their responsibilities. And this is what's going on at Mount Sinai. But by contrast, when God covenanted with Abraham in the passage that Paul's referring to, there was no mediator. There's no obligations to have to coordinate between parties. What God does with Abraham is entirely one-sided. He just makes a promise, right? He just says, I will bless you and your offspring. Even in the covenant ratification ceremony, the only participant was God. Remember how in the Old Testament they would sometimes cut an animal and put this sacrifice on the ground, or put the animal on the ground, this bloody animal, and 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 then pass, the two parties to the covenant would pass between, and this seems to be a kind of form of, one form of entering into, establishing a covenant, a little more bloody than the covenants that we typically think of. We have a covenant of marriage, and two people walk down the aisle, and they get married, right? And it's nice and clean, and everybody's wearing white. This is a, a covenant where it's saying, like, if I break the covenant, may it be to me, like it is to this animal. May my blood be shed. But, but instead of, of God and Abraham walking through the the, the animal, God puts Abraham into a deep sleep and God walks through there in himself in the form of 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 a fire pot and a torch. He passes through and enters into this covenant. Not between two, but in himself. He makes a promise, a solemn promise. So, the law covenant then was broken because of man's sin. It served a temporary purpose, but the promise could not be broken because it was sworn on the faithfulness of God alone. Now all of this negative talk about the law, Paul saying the law doesn't save, the law is, you know... Uh, doesn't serve this purpose that you guys are making it into to justify yourselves before God. All of that talk would make it sound almost like the law is in contradiction to the promise of God. He picks this up in verse 21. Uh, follow along as we, we come to a close here. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is that the case? Some people have taught that there are actually two contradictory ways to be saved by works for Israel and by faith for Christians. Of course, the law is not in contradiction to the promise. He says, certainly not. And then he goes on in the end of verse 21, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. In theory, the works principle is still valid. The covenant of works still stands. Romans chapter eight, verse three, Paul says that the weakness of the law what where's the weakness of the why is the law weak? He said it's weak because of our flesh it's not a problem with the law it's a problem with us as we relate to the law in my in the flesh by nature i'm spiritually dead, unwilling and unable to keep god's law. This is why Paul says in romans eight seven that the natural mind does not quote, does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. So because of that, the law couldn't give life. Not because there was a problem in itself, but because there was a problem in me. The law couldn't give life. It could only show me that I'm what? I'm not alive, I'm dead. In the flesh, I am dead in my trespasses and my sins. But the problem with the law is not the law. The law is holy, righteous, and good. The problem is with me. Here's the way Paul summarizes it in Romans 7. I think we read this in our Scripture reading last week, but let's just remind ourselves. Romans 7 verse 9, he says, I was once, quote, alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, when I was really confronted with God's law, then sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life, and it does, life to those who obey, proved to be death to me for sin seizing an opportunity through the law, through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So he says, did that which is good then bring death to me? No, by no means. It was sin actually producing death in me through that which is good, that is the law in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So Paul's answer here, as in Romans, is that the law is not contrary to the promise, even though they do operate on entirely different principles. Rather, the two serve different functions. The law shows us God. And the law shows us how far we are from God in order to drive us to the promise which points us to the offspring who would do for us what we did not and cannot do for ourselves. Amen? And that is His gospel. And so, as Paul says in verse 22, the Scripture That is the law in this context. The Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law and the promise are not contrary. They are complementary. They serve different functions. The law condemns so that you and I will run to Jesus, the Savior. In that sense, you might say the law is a little like chemotherapy. When it's used to treat cancer, chemotherapy does not give life. In fact, it does exactly the opposite, doesn't it? It literally kills. And it kills good cells along with what it's intended to kill, that is the cancerous cells. It becomes actually an instrument of death. The chemicals destroy. It actually even makes the patient feel worse. And that's really what the law does. The law brings a person to feel worse than before he really ever thought deeply about the law. And that, in the end, turns out to be his saving grace. Martin Luther said it this way, God uses the law as a mighty hammer to crush the rocks and a fire burning in the midst of heaven to overthrow the mountains, that is to crush that stubborn and perverse beast, presumption, self-justification. And when a man has been brought to nothing by this pounding, despairs of his own powers, righteousness, and works, and trembles before God, he will in his terror begin to thirst for mercy and forgiveness of sins. Has the law ever done that in you? Oh, I can tell you many times when God has brought the law home to my conscience in a smarting way, in a painful way, where I found myself weeping at my state before a holy God. And it's in those moments where the gospel comes to life. That's where the gospel becomes something that you hold on to with all your heart. Like, I need this, I need Christ, or I'm damned. That's the beauty of what the law does in all of its rough sort of way. Have you ever honestly stopped to examine yourself in the light of God's holy and just and good law? Have you ever stopped explaining away the commandments of God, reinterpreting them to fit a popular thinking? Or have you ever stopped making excuses for your own disobedience and just came to terms with the fact that you are No excuses, a lawbreaker, and a rebel against God. Has that ever happened in you? In a way that has made you run to Jesus and say, Save me, Lord. Save me. Romans chapter 3, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and so that the whole world may become guilty before God. Has the law ever so worked in your life to where it's made made your mouth stop? Stop making excuses. Stop explaining it away. And just acknowledging your accountability and your sin. We sing it sometimes, all the fitness God requireth is to feel your need of Him. And that's true. And that is the gift of the law to drive us to the promise of grace in the offspring. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, please let this word continue its good work in me and in your people. I pray it in Jesus' name.